Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. I'm your host, Will Francis, and today I'll be talking to Lucy Askew about moving a theatre company, a very physical business, to digital. Lucy is the CEO of Creation Theatre in Oxford, England, and during the COVID-19 pandemic, the theatre, unlike many businesses in the arts, thrived. So we're going to hear how the company moved to digital and leveraged various digital marketing tactics and tools in interesting ways. These lessons will, of course, be applicable to any business, I think, whether e-commerce focused or a service provider or anything else. So, Lucy, welcome to the podcast. I'm very, uh, very glad you're here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Um, not talked to any theatre companies on the podcast so far. And yeah, I can only imagine it's been an interesting time. Do I think it'd be good to just start out by setting the scene. Give me a brief overview of this unexpected pivot that you were kind of forced to make to digital back in spring of 2020. Yeah, at Creation Theatre, we were in a um, particularly strange position at the start of the pandemic because we were doing a performance um, inside the London Library, which is a sort of beautiful members-only library in the centre of London. And we were doing a production of The Time Machine, H.G. Wells, um, the H.G. Wells novel. But we'd written the script, written by um, a writer called Jonathan Holloway, building in research from the Wellcome Centre of Ethics and Humanities, So this is a a faculty of Oxford University um, sponsored by the Wellcome Trust. And they look at all sort of ethical issues around big data and, you know, um, AI and robotics and all sorts of things that could happen in the future, what impacts they might have on humanity. So we'd written this script building in their research and the vast sort of thrust of the story, the main thing the story was about was saying there will be a a SARS-like pandemic and it will wipe out millions of people And the only country that will be relatively unaffected is New Zealand. And then there'll be lots of politics around vaccine inequity. So we were in the middle of doing a show about a global pandemic (laughs) changing the the future of humanity and a global pandemic hit. What are the chances? I know. Well, we think very carefully about our programming now and (laughs) what impact we might have on the world. Mm. So we sort of, in a way, we had a kind of insight into you know, really leading sort of thought leaders on on what what could happen. And 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 really, we have that insight of this is not a thing that's going to happen and be resolved in a few weeks. So as the first lockdown happened in, in, in the UK and all theatres had to close, I think we instantly had a feeling of we're in this for the long haul. So it's really worth Think making big decisions and thinking dramatically about the future because this isn't something that we just need to get through in a few weeks. Um, so we then we were very friendly. We're very friendly with a company called Big Telly, who are based in Northern Ireland and uh, are led by the brilliant Zoe Seaton, who's a real kind of um, just theatrical genius, really, and sees the world in a completely uh, magical. <laughs> creative way so we talked to Zoe and they were in a similar situation to us that they'd been producing a show and it'd been locked down we both had actors on contracts we were paying those actors but we were all in remote locations and and couldn't perform so we came together and we started to play and Zoe with the actors created the Tempest of a Zoom show and we just didn't look back we just absolutely fell in love with what we can do digitally and how we can connect with audiences remotely that's that's absolutely fascinating I mean, did, so how how did it feel doing that? Did you, did it feel like a big risk? 
or was it just did you feel I had no choice? It was actually quite liberating in a strange way because so often sort of pre-pandemic, the stakes are very sort of personal with every show. This is the show we've chosen to do and it needs to sell so many tickets and we need to cover the costs of it and, you know, we have to kind of sort of prove our worth on each production. And there was a brilliant feeling in those early days of we have nothing to lose. We've got nothing to lose here because we're probably all going to close down anyway because we can't make theatre. So let's just be brave let's be bold, let's put work out there. And it felt really, really clear, more clarity than I think we've ever had, that the two things we needed to do were entertain people who had had all their kind of, you know, normal lifestyles stripped away from them and were just stuck at home. And a really strong sense of that and a really strong sense that we had to find routes to employ people. We had to find ways to pay freelancers to make work. And I think that clarity and really clear kind of sense of purpose um, was just a really a really valuable thing for us in being able to make work really confidently. It sounds like you, you you had this real momentum behind you and maybe a new energy because this whole new format, you know. It was a feeling of like we'd discovered a new medium, like we'd, we'd just discovered this like whole new thing to play with. And the, the work that Zoe and the cast did and how they took Zoom and they just pulled it apart and were really playful with it. And the audience were... You know, it was in Zoom. So that I think the key thing creation did that was different to, to what a lot of people did in the early work was we weren't streaming a thing we'd made before. We weren't playing a video. We were doing something that was live as you watched it, but you could see other audience members in it as well. So it really built a sense of community and participation and the uniqueness of live work. Um, and then we just got brilliant coverage as well. So we had a review in The Guardian and The New York Times and we got featured on, on Front Row, which is a big culture programme in the UK. And that just sort of really sort of elevated our company profile. Like we, we achieved more in the space of about three months than we'd done in 22 years. <laughs> and so how did you use Zoom? Uh, how did you use the functionality of Zoom just out of interest? So in those early shows, it was really hacky. So it was using virtual backgrounds and then sometimes playing with the virtual backgrounds when they when they went wrong. So we had bits <laughs> where we, we sort of made advantage of bad lighting and things disappearing. Um, some of our performers didn't have, you know, some of them had green screens. Some of them didn't have green screens. So they just pinned up sheets so they found a sheet that was a solid colour and they pinned that up behind them. Some of them didn't have computers that would do virtual backgrounds. So there were a couple of actors that we sent mini projectors that we owned out to them. And then they performed against white walls with projected backgrounds on top of them. Um, and then Ariel, the, um, I was a brilliant Ariel, she was in a cupboard. So she had a, couple, a cupboard with little fairy lights around her and you know, and Zoe and our designer, Ryan, really made an advantage of it being a sort of, it became part of the story that Ariel was in this more physical, magical mm. space where other people had these sort of illusion backgrounds to them. Mm, well, that's interesting. And was there elements of interactivity? Yes. Yeah, there was loads of interactivity in it. So it had like when they started the storm, like the sound of raindrops, um, all the audience would click their fingers <laughs> and they'd rub their hands together to the sound of the wind. And we had bits where they were seen and they were so they could hold up their pets and and when they danced would spotlight different people. So it had a real kind of feeling of community and interactivity and being there together as a community. That's interesting. So I suppose that's why, I mean, that starts to explain why maybe it, it yes, it, it did better and performed and 
got a bit more attention than people just, like you say, just converting things or just playing things straight through just one video stream. And that's kind of the end of it, really. It seems like it was more immersive. Yeah, I think it's that it's that immersion and the community and the liveness. But also I think it was that it was something that was made for the medium. And actually a lot of the work that was that was shown sort of early doors in the pandemic particularly was work that was filmed for an archive or filmed for a different purpose and was then shared, which was a joy seeing work shared, but actually something that's made to be experienced in a theatre where we're then watching it on film doesn't really play to the advantages of digital. Whereas obviously when we make digital work, one of the great joys is that we're much closer to the performer. They're performing to a webcam the webcam doesn't like it if they move too far away, they go out of focus. So there's a natural intimacy to the performance. Yes, and it mirrors the other conversations we're having with distant relatives and friends and stuff. You know, we're, we're having Zoom calls with them as well. So it feels like very, uh, very similar to our personal experiences. So I suppose you, you, you never played replays. You, all your shows are live. They have to be live, do they? Yeah, pretty much. We did. We've played with it. So we've kind of really seen it as a as a tool that we can sort of dial up and dial down the sort of amount of it that's sort of live and the liveness. So a lot of the shows we now will mix in little pre-filmed clips because we sometimes will say there's no point in sort of killing ourselves to do something live if the audience don't know it's live. So actually, if there's a really spectacular sequence which is played in as a film. And that would be hard to reproduce every time. Yeah, yeah, or a really big emotional, like we're currently, we're making a production of The Witch of Edmonton and there's a character that like hits her head against a, a tree so many times she dies, like she goes mad and you go, I don't need to put an actor through that every night for two weeks. Oh, that's interesting. I would do on the stage, but digitally I can start saying, actually, let's not put you through that every night. Let's film that little, you know, couple of minutes sequence once. Let's get that really spectacular. And then you can actually not have to go through that emotion every night. So we play a bit with the liveness. That's very interesting, actually. Mixed live and not live and the audience are never quite sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've said loads of times, if I could, I'd just write a whole piece. I'd stop and do a PhD now on liveness. And because it's a lot of it is the, um, if you know it's live. So there'll be, there'll be times when, you can watch a filmed clip as an audience member and go, oh, just that was great. I love that. And it might be that the artistic team will watch it and go, oh, I think that fell really flat. And you'll go, no, that's because you know it was filmed. It's because you knew exactly what you were going to see and there was no danger in it for you. But if you're a, if you're watching it with fresh eyes and it's the first time you've ever seen it, you get the same sort of emotional response from watching it. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how you can and how you can achieve liveness without it... Um, through sort of interaction rather than the performers physically being live. So we've worked with like AI chatbots or branching video or other technology that in a similar way relies on, to us, it's more important that the audience are live than it is that the performers are. Yes, that's that's the distinction. That's really interesting. I'll talk to you more about some of the technology in a minute, actually. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, okay, so that's it I've got the picture how did that go down with the audience like your existing audience how did they respond to that and they were brilliant like we had a really good response like I mean bear in mind that when the first show when the Tempest went on none of them had ever been invited to see a show in Zoom before it was completely you know like um, and, and we sold it sold really really fast and then as people experienced it and word spread and it got press coverage it, it kind of grew and grew 
my take on it is because we're, you know, prior to the pandemic, we're site-specific producers. So we're normally producing in a park or in an industrial estate or in a bookshop. So I think it means we have a self-selecting audience who are quite adventurous. So when we say, oh, we're going to do something in Zoom, they go, that's interesting. I want to see what that's like. Um, obviously, our audience has evolved over the last two years now, so that's sort of not necessarily quite the same um, demographic anymore. But certainly in the early days, they were they were sort of very willing to sort of jump in and give it a go. Mm, and that's interesting to me that, you know, before you knew your audience really well because they were turning up, you were, you were physically seeing them face to face as they streamed in for an evening's performance. But how did you keep that? good understanding that you have your audience as you scaled this all over all around the world some of it is that we've replicated what we would have done in the real world so i'll go to a lot of the digital shows i will be in the audience i will be observing as as i would do in a theater who else is there looking at the customer lists knowing the names so there are audience members we knew before the digital work who have come with us and who we will still see and wave to and say hello to and then there are audience members that we've now become friendly with entirely through the digital work and through recognising that they come along and then maybe chatting to them. We have a sort of post-show bar, so we'll keep a call open and people can come and talk to us at the end of shows. And we've run some focus groups as well. And so there are now people that I've never met in the real world shows who we, we actually know quite well and we would identify as digital bookers. And are they younger? Are they different uh, in some way? We're still learning about sort of, you know, who that digital audience is. But from our sort of initial data and and findings, one thing we know is that they are slightly older than our our sort of analogue audience were, which was, yeah, not at all what we were expecting. We were sort of probably a bit ignorantly assuming that digital meant young and that digital meant sort of gamers and people in their 20s and that actually... A lot of retired people are very digitally savvy and have worked on computers for most of their working life um, and are more affected by the pandemic and being able to go out and go places. And even you know, under normal conditions, have more concerns about parking and comfort of seats and where the toilets are and traveling in the dark and all those kind of concerns. So it's it's had a really, you know, really strong follow following from the sort of retired community but we also have you know we do have a really good mix in there still we did a focus group and found that a third of the focus group don't earn televisions so (laughs) we're now we haven't dug into that more and we don't know what the size of that market would be but there's some I think there's some more to be learned and some interesting sort of patterns there about who are the people who are looking for sort of interactive live digital experiences that aren't television that giving you a bit more feedback than television that are much more niche to you I think it's very like long tail marketing as well so it's we're we're currently doing which Edmonton we did Dutch to Malfi last year and we've discovered that early modern drama sells really well digitally which wouldn't you know when you start thinking of a digital show you think you want to do massive titles but it's easier to sell it's easier to sell The Witch of Edmonton than it is to sell Romeo and Juliet because the people who care about early modern drama will mobilise, will book, will be excited to see that title performed. If you want to see Romeo and Juliet, you can see it all over the place. So true. And that that is really the thing with, with marketing, with content marketing or content on the web, isn't it? That when you hit a fairly underserved audience, let's face it, early modern drama, that audience, is, I would imagine, are quite excited when anything 
they see anything that kind of touches, you know, presses their buttons um, because there's not so much of it about. And um, but but by reaching those people, like you say, they mobilize, they'll tell their friends, they'll be like, you know, tell everyone they know that they that was also into early modern drama. Just just define what is early modern drama? So early modern drama is sort of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson. It's around that sort of 1600s. Um, yeah, 1600s playwrights. So largely Shakespeare is probably the, the main one that, and it's Shakespeare and his contemporaries, but it's often the, the contemporaries that are the ones that um, really get that sort of niche excitement around them. <laughs> right, so that's interesting. So you're, you, And you're shaping the audience in a way by the productions you're putting on and are you making different... Are you making different choices about the productions you put on now with this new medium? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's got a, um, you know, part of it is that we can do these more niche titles. Um, and obviously we'd love to, we've done a couple of sort of more family shows. So we did a production of Alice in Wonderland in um, 2020, but have found that although it's a medium that works brilliantly for children and families, it's actually a harder sell because the concerns about screen time and, all the other things that children and families can do are a bit harder to sort of connect with. So it's it tends to be settling down now into being sort of slightly more adult audiences. Um, and we're also kind of increasingly looking more and more into those sort of access benefits. So the access benefits for audiences who, who maybe have barriers or issues at attending physical theatres, but also the access benefits for our performers and for our team and that we don't have to, you know, we're based in Oxford, which is one of the most expensive cities in the UK. Actually, since we've become digital, we now have our team and our performers based all over the country. So that, again, it has a knock-on effect to the people who can sustainably work in our industry and be in our shows. Hello, a quick reminder from me that if you're enjoying our podcast series, why not become a member of the DMI so that you can enjoy loads more content from webinars and case studies to toolkits and more real-life insights from the world of digital marketing. Head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com forward slash ahead of the game to sign up for free. Now back to the podcast. Okay, so let's just think, I'd love to kind of probe you a bit about the kind of marketing channels that you're using. What does your marketing mix look like today? So it's still very uh, trying out different things all the time. Uh, so we have, obviously we have a big database. So as a, a you know, because we sell our own tickets and we, we deal with our own bookings. So that gives us a kind of a real sort of the core of any marketing campaign is to those people who've booked before. Um, and we have a reasonably sophisticated um, sort of CRM system alongside that. So we can know um, and sort of track who the most likely people are to book and what kind of shows they've seen in the past and try and really tailor their messaging and so you segment your communication based on what what people have seen who who they are whether they're previously a physical booker or just a digital only that sort of thing yeah and then within that if they're a physical booker which type of do they see family shows do they see the sort of shows in a bookshop what what kind of genre are they interested in so we do lots of segmentation of that list and then alongside that we have quite a, a busy social media um, presence so we do you know facebook and instagram and and twitter twitter seems to be the strongest one at the moment for the sort of the type of community we're currently appealing to um i think it's very rooted in academia so i think it's this is a very active community on twitter and twitter is the place that they discuss and that they share and you know there's a big um a big presence there less so 
Facebook. But then I think probably as I'm sure lots of people are finding, Facebook has generally become a much harder tool to use to effectively, um, you know, we still will do advertising on it, but it's not seeing the same kind of engagement and returns as it would have done in the past. Um, so yeah, so that social presence is quite strong. Obviously we're a charity, so we get um, a Google AdWords grant as well. So some of it is sort of through AdWords as well. Um, and we're in a slightly odd position as well at the moment because we are, are we had a website that was very old that sort of dramatically died last year. So we've been rebuilding our website from the ground up over the last couple of months. But as we always do, just doing it our own way and developing our own kind of approach to building a website that's a sort of slow build of going what do we need now and then slowly adding to it and um, it's actually been quite a really exciting process of really focusing in on what are the key messages and what's the customer journey and yeah but those those would be the main things and then obviously because we're we've worked with a lot of partners over the years so we'll do a lot of sort of um collaborations with with different um, people we've worked with before where they'll promote a show or send out an e-flyer or or tweet about something. You say you use Google AdWords because, you, as you say, you get a Google AdWords or Google Ads as known now, a grant because they give grants to charities that give you a certain amount of free uh, ad budget. I'm curious, what's a typical ad for someone like you? You know, what intent are you kind of capturing? Well, and obviously when you're looking at the US and our US bookers have gone up a lot and, you know, we did an e-fire last week and, the you know, the, the one that went to US bookers was as successful as the one in the UK. But obviously we spell theatre differently. <laughs> you know, there's there's things where like how you manage that when obviously our website and all our communications would 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 be wrong for the UK audience if we spelt theatre the other way. But also, you know, for a US audience to see something and go, I identify with this, this is a cultural activity for me. It obviously now we're quite lucky in that, you know, the sort of particularly Shakespeare, early modern, you know, there is a kind of cultural capital in actually in in the Britishness of it. And Oxford as well, this sort of conjures up, you know, uh, uh, pictures of Harry Potter and, you know, and uh, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, and the sort of authenticity of the relationship with universities and academia and stuff are all very good. But yeah, it is, it's, it's a definite um, thing that we're still seeing we need to do a lot of work on and trying to learn about as well. Because when you, you know, you go, okay, we, we can see this potential for growth in our US audience. But then you go, okay, well, where in the US are they? <laughs> and start looking at. I mean, how are these people find you? How, how have your US audience come to you? I think initially it was that there were a few who had booked as tourists when they'd been in the UK. So we're on the mailing list. So there were a small number there. And then it was that when we when we sort of went out and did The Tempest, we managed to get picked up by the New York Times and Time Out New York by our PR. So, yeah, so I mean, that's for several times. We did several shows where we were in Time Out New York. We were in Time Out New York for a couple of shows when we weren't in Time Out London. <laughs> So we actually, you know, I think it may be that we we had a kind of body of digital work and it adapted very quickly. So there was more work going on. You know, our work was able to kind of get picked up because there was less noise there. There were there weren't as many shows to choose from. So we were going on the list of top 10 digital things to, to do this week. Just because of everyone was so quiet, you know, everyone, all your competitors for that those column inches was just doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And were, were you were you just lucky, or I mean, how did you get all this coverage? Was there anything particularly that you did proactively? We have a good PR 
we have a fourth wall PR, Diana, that we work with was really good. At. And I think also that we that we we invested in that early on. We went, even though we were in a situation where we had no financial mm. guarantee that we'd be, you know, still here a few months down the line, we went, if this is going to work, we've got to do PR about it. So we sort of got Diana working on it and we were very lucky that it got that it got picked up. And then we had the Tempest was seen by um, a playwright called Charlotte Keatley, um, who is, you know, one of the most eminent uh, playwrights in the UK. And she she loved it. And then she spoke about it on Front Row and she helped champion it as well. So we got lucky in sort of several areas that it, it sort of achieved notoriety very quickly. Yes, but you make your own luck, don't you? And I think as you as you talked about when we chatted before the this podcast, you, you relatively you put quite a lot of money into PR. I think that sounded to me the way you put it like it was a bit of a gamble. It was quite a hefty amount of money compared to what you were spending in other channels. But you believed that 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 was that was where to you know get get that coverage, get get talked about and. In, on a sort of um, on those big platforms like Time Out and the New York Times, Guardian, etc., and it paid off. Yeah, I think we were. I think we were a bit fearless as well because I think people were going into like working with a new medium, going into Zoom, working with digital tools, and didn't trust them, and were worried that it was going to fail. The broadband was going to go out. Everyone was terrified of being Zoom bombed. And so people were. Sc- I know it's ridiculous now, isn't it? I'm so scared of Zoom bombers. People were so worried about all of those things that they weren't making work confidently. They were maybe doing little online experiments and telling a few people about them. And and we just went all in and went, if we're going to do this, we're going <laughs> to go for it. And I think the fact we stuck to it as well, that we didn't, you know, people were constantly, you know, very busy with cancelling shows and cancelling plans and, and work being taken up with adapting to the fact you can do things. But also, in a way, it was our pessimism that sort of helped us out that we were thinking, oh no, we're not going to have any chance of doing a show in all. Oh no, we won't be able to do a show then. Better stick online, better stick online. So we could start to program further ahead. We could be more, and we could apply for, like we got um, Innovate UK Sustainable Innovation funding um, in 2020, at the end of 2020 for sort of a nine month program where we had five actors working full time with us for six months and we built a digital platform as an alternative to Zoom. And we did a big report about sustainability of digital theatre and how it has a 98.9% reduction in carbon emissions. But we were able to do that because we were able to say, no, we're sticking to this is going to take a long time to sort out. Whereas I think for a lot of people, they were optimistic and they were going, oh, no, we'll we'll do a little you know Zoom thing. And Just tipping the toe in. But you were like, we're going all in on digital. Yeah. And, and that allowed you to get that innovation yeah. funding and, and all that kind of thing. That's very interesting i think that um i think we can all learn something from that for sure uh just in in marketing in life in business good things don't tend to come out of dipping one's toe in the water you won't fully know it's working sometimes as well you can't fully assess if something's got got real potential if you go in half-hearted the next thing i want to ask you about is we you mentioned that you'd use some digital marketing tools in quite interesting, unusual ways, things like Twilio for sending SMSs and what have you. Talk to me about that. How, how, have, you, how have you kind of leveraged all this available, amazing technology that was, is provided for marketers, but actually can be used very creatively for um, performing arts? 
Yeah, well, we found there's so many tools out there that you sort of land on their websites and they're really trying to sell something as a marketing tool that we look at and instantly go, oh, we could make a show. We could make a show with this. And so obviously Zoom is the first example. It's a conferencing platform. It's become our home for, you know, many, many shows now. I think 12 of the last 13 have been in Zoom. But we've also, we've worked with Twilio and we've done like a, like an automated call system. We've done that on two shows. So we did one on Romeo and Juliet where you you had a QR code on the screen, you scanned that in, it called a number, and then you were given a series of options, press one for Capula Enterprises, press two for, and then one of the options that you selected would take you into a live phone call with a live actor who would be able to actually have a conversation with you. But you may never discover that. You might just listen to the automated ones and move on. Um, and we used it in the production of Christmas Carol where we did a similar thing. And on that one, we had a hidden number that you didn't know about till the end. So you had it early on in the experience. You had the first five options. And then at the end of the show, it said, oh, you know, dial the number again and press six. And then you had a kind of redeemed uh, Scrooge secret hidden message. So we've used those. Just to be clear as well, like Twilio is what is the technology that sits behind a lot of the SMSs and messages and phone calls you get from massive companies like, you know, Uber and Deliveroo and DoorDash and Marks and Spencers and eBay. Like they they they're the backbone of a lot of they basically handle telecommunications of one sort or another, don't they, for for businesses. And like you say, it's sold as a marketing tool or, or a way to update people on when their parcel is arriving. But you used it in this way to trigger these kind of calls that were a fun take on the kind of corporate help desk there's so much more we could do with this one as well i like to feel we could do a whole show that's just on a phone pressing buttons and <laughs> going through different routes and yeah i think so calls call center drama type kind of thing or um so okay that's interesting any any other i mean because you must have looked then through various marketing tools and it's almost like a toolbox or like a toy box for you guys um what other kind of things did you play with so we've played with branching video so we did romeo and juliet second half of romeo and juliet we did in branching video we used um software called interactor um, but there's lots of different ones out there that do the same thing. And you can you can sort of replicate it in YouTube or Vimeo, um, although it's a slightly sort of fiddlier way of doing it. But it's basically like doing Bandersnatch, like the um, Charlie Brooker on Netflix um, or the Puss in Boots show on Netflix for kids. It's basically where you watch a video, watch a show, and at several places you get to choose what direction the story goes in next. So you have two, three options and you click on one. So on Romeo and Juliet, we had four different endings and in one of the endings they survived. So you could you could make the choices that would leave to Romeo and, lead to Romeo and Juliet surviving, but three, four, three out of four options, they die. <laughs> But you'd have a different way, a different way the story was told in getting there. Um, so we've played with that. And again, it's very much a marketing tool. If you go and look on the website, it's all about, you know, different nice marketing videos that it's used for. What was the tool you used again? We used Interactor. Yeah. And you build like a sort of spider's web of joining up sort of little nodes for story and different directions it can go in and where on the screen you can press to get the next the next piece of the story. Um, so, yeah, so we've used branch video. We've also used essentially what is chatbots. We've used sort of AI generated characters you can talk to. So we work quite closely with a company called Charisma Entertainment who do interactive story led AI. 
Um, but when you're programming it and when you're playing with it, you go, really, it's, it's sort of like amazing, exciting, interactive chatbots. So you have a character and you talk to that character and the character can learn, remember what your answers you've previously given it to. It can kind of attribute emotions. So we've done, we did an AI Cheshire cat that you chatted to at the beginning of Alice in Wonderland. We did an AI tarot card reading at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet. And we did for the Brothers Grimm, we did an AI version of me. So it would be like you were arriving front of house and you were welcomed by me and I would talk to you about digital theatre and the show and, you know, how you were doing. And um, so really trying to, you know, look at different ways we can use all these tools and build them into different types of interactive experience. That's very, very interesting. Um, I mean, I suppose I was just thinking about this. Did, 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 did any of that data kind of feed back into your CRM system? I know I'm, that sounds like a really cynical marketing thing to say, but do you know what I mean? In a sort of anecdotal way, yes. Not formally, but we can see, when particularly if you're talking to the AI characters, we can see the questions people ask and the answers they give. So obviously we can then look at that and from a sort of anecdotal level go, oh, look, all the people are saying that the show they would like us to do next is X or um, they're all asking this particular question. So we can kind of start to learn a bit more about our audience. And I think we can see we've we sort of hit the tip of the iceberg there as well and that we could use that to generate even more useful information. Yeah, I mean, if it was, yeah, it seems to me, if it was me, I'd be looking at thinking about, again, how can we feed that into the CRM? How can we uh, segment by that next time, like, you know, so that the subject of the newsletter to a certain segment could be, look, you wanted Romeo to kiss Juliet, but, um, you know, something or make reference to a choice they made. I mean, I don't know how creepy that gets or... Um, but I think there's there's interesting stuff to play with there. Um, do do people get anything outside of the time that they're sat watching? Do do any does any communication fall out of the show? Like they don't get an email from a character the next day or anything like that. We've done we so we played with so some of the shows we've done text messages. So we've done like text messages, that we, but we did that kind of in the pre-digital world. We'd sometimes have text messages in shows that would go out at some particular moments. Um, and we have worked a bit with, like on Romeo and Juliet, we started building websites that lived outside of the show that people could go and explore. And we actually ended up binning them because they got too distracting. But we sort of were sort of playing with that idea. So it's something we've played with a little bit, but sort of not in a not in a huge way yet. But we do, for all of our audience, our, our digital audience, we've sort of set up a sort of retention kind of um, program where we send them and when they book their first digital show they get sent a well done you book your first digital show and then they get a, when they book five they get well done you're a digital you know trailblazer and you're a digital connoisseur when you book 10 or you know like there's different levels to sort of because what we're working is we're trying to get people to adopt a medium they're not used to um, and that's new to them. So we really want them to see it not, this isn't an, a pandemic activity now. This is a another all, another thing in the sort of palette of cultural experiences that you can, you know, participate with. So we're trying to sort of foster a feeling of people sort of self-identifying as I am a person who likes to do digital theatre and I like to do it regularly and I'm going to keep going back. It sounds better than just sitting in front of some random show on Netflix, you know. I mean, um, I think, yeah, I think everybody gets a sense of that. I suppose uh, how – so you've you've built your own platform. 
what 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 issues why why have you moved away from zoom what what did you want to fix with zoom what was that not doing for you well it was interesting because at first it was very much on the sort of technical limitations of zoom so a part of that was to do with how zoom treats audio so zoom always prioritizes the human voice um, and actually physically it prioritizes sort of fate has facial recognition so if you're working with a green street green backdrop it will kind of detect the face so there's brilliant, really exciting tools in Zoom, but they are they do limit what you can do with sound design. Um, it also has, which I think you know, there have been some articles writing about it. That in all its clever settings around light and low light adjustment, it can be terrible for um, uh, people with dark skin. People of color can look the color of their skin can look very different on Zoom to what it looks like in reality. Um, so we wanted we wanted to build a platform where we had more control over being able to mix in audio, mix in visuals and play with them creatively. Also to be able to change the layout so that we wouldn't have to, in Zoom, it's very sort of either you're spotlighting a selection of people or you're all of equal size. And we wanted to create what we call ambient audience. So a sense of I am here with other people watching, but we're all mainly watching one large screen. So in auditorium, you have little bubbles that sit on three sides and then you have a nice big screen in the centre. And then once the show starts properly, we dim the lights and the whole auditorium goes dark and the, the, the sort of screen becomes full screen. And we all watch the experience on full screen unless we want to kind of force you back to auditorium view for a particular moment where you might want to see people clap or wave or laugh or kind of interact a little bit more. But it's really going, what's it like? Where Where's where's our kind of, what are we looking at when we're in a theatre we're aware there are other people there and that's an important part of the experience, but we're not actually looking at the person four seats away equally to the way we're looking at the stage. So sort of setting up that kind of... Yeah, it's interesting that. I mean, it's, it's great. It's, it's a fantastic um, template that you, we just, you, you're describing the way that you've developed because it's so... You know, the advice to any startup is never, never start off by building your own technology at, at cost. Be, always use what's out there, which you did, and then prove it and see that it works and then start to think about what you'd fix about the off the shelf stuff. And then when you know you've got a kind of a proven model, you know, start to improve that and take it to the next step by building your own platform. You've done exactly that. You know, it's the real kind of lean startup you almost sound like something out of Silicon Valley or something, you know, because you've really done this like lean startup thing. Yeah, I think that comes very naturally to sort of theatre people because everything's always on like a tight budget and, and and is always about sort of seeing the possibilities and the creative solutions around things. So we started off, we, at one point when we were sort of developed, we got the money and we were developing this platform. We had a moment with our developers where we were going, they were saying it can't be done. <laughs> You can't have 150 people watching the screen. The bandwidth won't do it. So then we went, well, how many can we have? They went, well, you could, we could probably get away with 50. So we went, okay, can we have the same show streamed three, into three different rooms with an audience of 50? And they went, oh, yeah, we can do that. So we went, okay, that's the platform then. So it works almost like a cinema that you can screen the same performance into three different rooms and each room has 50 in. And that's the way, because the economics of theatre are such that it had to be able to have 150 people in an audience to get to the point where a show would ever be viable. Limitations are what kind of give us ideas and uh, there's nothing worse than being able to do everything and having no limitations because it's just a massive blank canvas, which is terrifying. So it's those limitations you can actually start to work with creatively and you've done that. Okay, so you're running shows globally. 
what's changed for you there? Because you've got time zones to consider, you've got cultural references beyond the south of England to consider, and the way that you promote what you do to consider. So how, how have you had to adapt to this more global nature? Uh, so we do do shows now at different times. So we generally like for the the witch that's just coming up, we have what would be 11 p.m. in the UK time. And then we we sort of have built an extra web page that converts that into different time zones in the US. So we're primarily sort of focusing on the US for this one. Um, I think it has sort of, I think that sort of British, English sort of, Shakespeare, early modern drama kind of brand has um, been part of the appeal on an international level. So that means we haven't had to culturally try and adapt it too much because it's partly going, you're buying this because it's Oxford and you're, yeah, these are British authors and that's why it's going to appeal to you. I think we've done really well with the fact that a lot of the international audience will come and see the work because it's a way they can share a show with friends or family they're not with which obviously goes on kind of way beyond pandemic conditions. So we have people who will regularly buy a ticket for themselves and then a ticket for their family in Switzerland. And then they can dial in and watch the show at the same time and talk about the show afterwards. And so I think we do quite well as well with the sort of expat community around the world of people who, you know, will enjoy coming to see the show and see friends and family in the UK that they can't um, see as frequently. So when people from other not-for-profit organisations ask you for tips, having seen how well you've done, what do you tell them? I think we mainly say not to be afraid because actually, you know, just like get online and play digitally and see all the possibilities and all the different people that you can reach. I think one thing that people certainly within our sector may not be aware of is just how generous the sort of tech community are with knowledge and skill, you know, you only if you don't know how to use pretty much any piece of software you can imagine, you just type it into Google and someone will have written a big piece, you know, a lovely blog explaining it, or there'll be a YouTube video that will show you how to do that thing. So we've gone into this and made a success of it without really having any skills. We 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 didn't work particularly digitally before, but we've learned all these skills just by you know asking Google and asking people for advice and. And reaching out to, you know, learning from the gaming sector, learning from film and TV, seeing it that you can, every, you know, learning from marketing tools that are out there, playing with them, seeing everything as an opportunity and not being too focused on your own skills and world that you're used to working with. That's a very good point. It's not about the skills in, in today's world, is it? It's, a, it's about the, it's, I think it's just about the initiative and the momentum and the, the willingness to take creative risks. And financial ones as, as well, but because, um, like you say, the skills can be acquired either through fairly inexpensive freelance input, or a lot of the time through a Google search um, to sort of muddle your way through how to use a piece of software. So, um, it's but it's about the willingness to do that, I think, and get stuck in. Just out of interest, if I came to you, and perhaps friends of you have asked you this as well, if I came to you and said, "Well, actually, I, I've got an e-commerce fashion shop. What, what advice have you got for me? What, what have you learned?" That you about selling stuff online in in a more general sense. I think just the power of data, which is probably quite a, a sort of boring answer to give, really. But just the 
the endless drilling down and like absolutely fascinating stuff you can learn about your audience and how long they're on different pages on the website and their booking patterns and that the more your booking process can generate more interesting data about them and the more you can learn about what types of products they want to buy and what they're choosing from you um I think it's just I think also can lead to real creativity actually it's the it's the create you know the exciting thing about marketing is it's you know, sometimes a lot of the time I'll think that actually the marketing of the shows is more creative than actually making the shows themselves. You know, the challenge of I know there are people out there who want this product. How am I going to find them and how am I going to reach them? And, you know, we were talking this morning about, you know, just the sort of in the UK, all the GDPR rules which have restricted the permissions we need to email people and the permissions we need to mail people. And actually, like the impact that had on how we reach people and how effective our mailing lists are and the challenge of how we overcome that in the future. It's, you know, a lot of creativity there. Yes, it's, it's like a big puzzle. That's how I always think of it. And it, it can be quite fun to tackle. So where does this leave physical theatre now for creation? Yeah, it will always be part of what we do. So, you know, we've been doing it for sort of coming up for 24 years. So you know, analogue shows, as we, we call them for want of a better word to describe them, will always be a part of what we do. But I think we, we become increasingly sustainability has become a massive driver behind our decision to mainly work digitally and behind a lot of our programming. And I think we're seeing a world where we will exist on a very sort of community, sort of tight, tight geographical area we used to have aspirations to go to London and to travel more and to kind of you know grow our reach um, geographically and now we're seeing it as it being about very limited audience travel very limited performer travel much more focus on the local for the analog work and then the digital being global so it's sort of what sort of taking out the middle sort of national recognition strategy and going, we want very, very community local recognition and we want global uh, global audiences and just really kind of focusing on those two um, extremities. I think, again, though, I think you're really mirroring what what's happening out there. I think a lot of people feel that way, you know, the, this this phenomenon of Zoom towns where people have left the cities, myself included, they've left cities, they've moved to small towns where they can get very engaged with their local community, but then they're having work calls with people in New York and London and elsewhere. And so you have this kind of global, highly global side to your life and highly local side to your life. I think that's just some, uh, an output of that. And it's interesting to... Yeah, I think it's potentially quite a fulfilling like lifestyle to live, like less time commuting, more commute. You know, actually, in a, in a way, the technology and the digital meetings and the digital Zoom shows or you know non-Zoom auditorium shows, the ability to do those things digitally gives us more time to connect with local community-led activities as well, and less time spent on trains and in cars and commuting and moving from A to B and sort of big big sort of towns and crowds of people and actually being able to go, we can make really meaningful impact at both ends of the, um, you know, the scale. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Well, look, thanks so much, Lucy. It's been really interesting to hear in detail uh, the journey that you've been on and, and all the different things that you've uh, tackled there. One more question for you. Just remind our listeners where they can find you online. Yes, we are creationtheatre.co.uk. Um, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of them as well. But the website is the best place to find us and to see what the future shows that we've got coming up are and the children's. We do online workshops 
and um, you know people dialing in across the globe for those as well so those are weekly sessions looking at online creativity and storytelling so that's all all on our website sounds great well we'll, we'll all be checking that out no doubt well thanks very much appreciate your time thank you If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about transforming your marketing career through certified online training, head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com. Thanks for listening.